Hi, everybody. Today, I have another fantastic guest. I have a stoicism expert, Donald Robertson. First, I'll say hello, then I'll introduce you. How are you doing, Donald? I'm very, very well. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So let me just tell the people a bit about you. You're a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and author, founder, member of the Modern Stoicism Nonprofit, and founder and president of the Plato's Academy Center Nonprofit in Athens, Greece, which I'm sure I'll be receiving a paid invitation to shortly. Uh, your books include, so this is back in 2010, The Philosophy of CBT, Cognitive Behavior Therapy, Stoic Philosophy as Rational and Cognitive Therapy, then a few years later, The Practice of Cognitive Behavior Hypnotherapy, then 2012, Build Your Resilience, uh, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, and then this guy, which I am devouring right now oh. how to think like a roman the stoic philosophy of marcus aurelius and most recently verissimus the stoic philosophy of marcus aurelius a graphic novel did i cover all of the key highlights or do you want to add anything before we get going i think that's more than enough <laughs> okay. so so i thought we'd start with by the way that for those of you who don't know uh the way that i came across this well i first had heard of you donald yeah. In a conversation I was having with a friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist at my uh, university, his name is Andrew Ryder, and we were talking about the the, the links between CBT and Stoicism because mm-hmm. I had delved into the ancient Greeks quite heavily when I, this, I have a forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, and it's very hard to talk about happiness without talking about the ancient Greeks' view on happiness and so on. And so that's yeah. when I had first heard about you. Then I was... You know, we in as a as a professor, you get uh, money to spend every year for professional development, and so I had to, you know, buy some books. I was trying to think which book should I buy. That's when I came across this beauty right here, and uh, I'm about halfway through it. So I'm not yet at your promised best chapter, which is the last chapter. Yeah. So maybe you'll tell me about that. I guess so better at the end. Yeah, we could talk about it at the end. Don't don't give me any spoilers because I want to no. I want to no. get to it. So here's what I thought we'd start with. You ready? So I have a a a an article that I wrote in Psychology Today from Uh 2014 where I said, you know, if you had 10 guests that you could invite to a dinner party throughout history, who would they be? And my list, which I'm happy to revise in light of Marcus Aurelius and so on, were the following: Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Galileo, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Leonardo da Vinci, Maimonides, and King Solomon. But now that I've become familiar with Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus, mm-hmm. I might have to remove some of these folks to make room yeah. for these three. What are your top 10? Take it away. That, oh, man, that's a lot of people. Like, um, <laughs> Okay, a few. I tell, I'll give you some of them. Uh, Marcus, well, I'll tell you what. Like At the moment, I'm writing a book about Socrates, and Socrates and Marcus Aurelius are my two favorite philosophers. And much as I love Marcus Aurelius, and I really do admire him, I'm very interested in him, he he is kind of a one-dimensional character in some ways compared to Socrates, who's just, you know, vastly more nuanced and complex. And that makes him a little bit harder sometimes for people to get into at first. But he once you start studying Socrates' life and learning about his thought... It's it's a much deeper and richer experience, it's like reading Shakespeare or something in a way, right? It's just it kind of draws you further and further in. So Socrates absolutely would be my my number one, and then 
you know, Marcus Aurelius, and I guess like Aristotle and Plato and all the great ancient philosophers, Epicurus. Um, I'd like to I'd like to meet all of these uh, guys. Gosh, and I feel like I'd spoil it if I then went on and invited Wittgenstein and Heidegger and, and those guys. I think I'd invite <laughs> them to a separate party, to be honest. <laughs> like, I wouldn't I'd want to keep the I'd want to keep the, the ancient philosophers separate. Do, do you do you have a sense in terms of so you know much of the decisions we might be making in terms of who to whom to invite to the dinner might be mm-hmm. based on their intellectual output, but yes. do we have a sense if we were trying to create the best the best the best cocktail mixer, which personality? So for example, I know for a fact that they were, and I, actually I was going to mention them later. Some satirists that appeal to me because I am right. quite adept at at satire so you know it might be that plato Mm. is a brilliant man and yet is a complete dud when it comes to his social interactions how much do we know about the personalities of all of these great philosophers well when we get into ancient philosophy and and particularly when we look at the greeks even more than the the romans or more obscure figures see marcus aurelius is kind of unique in a way because he was what i like to refer to technically as a big deal back in the day so because he was a Roman emperor, we know quite a lot about him. And we're very lucky because in addition to the meditations, which is actually his private reflections, so it's like a window into his soul. It literally is how a Roman emperor thinks. We also have his private letters and we have a record of his legal rescripts. So we know the, the legislative agenda that he pursued. We have many statues of him. So this is like a huge treasure trove compared to what we have about other ancient philosophers about whom we, we often know virtually nothing or or we get kind of anecdotes and myths and legends about some of them. Diogenes the Cynic would be a good example. Yeah, he He's a really cool guy. But most of what we know about him is really dubious historically and quite a lot of it looks like it may have come from satires about him. Right. You know, and so often information in the ancient world about philosophy got passed down in books and lectures. But unlike today, I think a lot of people learned about ancient philosophers from satire. Yeah. Um, and Socrates was satirized by Aristophanes during his lifetime. The earliest extant writing that we have about Socrates is The Clouds by Aristophanes, which just completely ridicules him as a, a pompous windbag, you know, and paints a completely opposite picture of what he was like from the way that that Plato portrays him. So sometimes we have this problem of contradictory accounts from different people. But I suppose that's not surprising because even today you might have a friend and there might be different people that know them and have totally different perceptions of whether they're a good guy or a bad guy or you know what they make of them as an individual. Not everyone agrees about other people's personalities. And we find that even two and a half thousand years ago. But Socrates, I think, seems to have been a pretty charismatic engaging master of conversation people say marcus aurelius was a very serious man but nevertheless quite affectionate he had a very close-knit circle of friends so you know maybe he would have been interesting as a conversationalist i think plato would have been an interest the, the whole socratic circle the actually you know what i'll invite the whole clique socrates <laughs> had a circle of people around them and i think that men in the ancient world you often get these intellectual circles like there's a cluster of people and it's very obviously you have that Socrates you have like great political figures like Alcibiades I'd like to meet although he's not a philosopher um he's kind of a tragic 
figure in, in Greek history. He's a, a failed statesman, but he was Socrates' friend, you know, almost like almost like lovers, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, they meant a lot to each other. So they're kind of the dynamic between them would have been fascinating. Xenophon, um, who's a, a military commander, is one of the younger students uh, of Socrates, would have been interesting. And Antisthenes was one of Socrates' students. He used to walk every day all the way from the harbour of Piraeus barefoot just to listen to Socrates speak, we're told. And he was one of the precursors of what became known as the Cynic School of Philosophy right. that predated the Stoics. The Cynics weren't around barefoot dressed in rags, kind of like beggars, Essentially, they were like almost like Indian holy men, and they, they embraced this kind of renunciate uh, lifestyle as, as well as following philosophy. But he, was, there were guys like that in Socrates' circle. Some of them would be finely dressed, some of them would be dressed in rags. I'd like to see the whole ensemble, actually. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I was recently asked on a show. I, um, I think it was actually a British show. Uh, who would be my favorite uh, Stoic? And I actually chose. Before I had read your book, I had chosen Marcus Aurelius because the fact that he was an emperor and yet such a man of letters really yeah. appeals to my polymathic, uh, you know, view on life. So that's why, for example, I love of all the ten people that I mentioned, Leonardo da Vinci might be the guy that I'd want to take to a yes. separate room and talk to him. Because, you know, he's a sculptor and he's also a futurist and he's also an anatomist and he's also a painter. And that greatly appears to my sort of interdisciplinarity nature. So the fact that you are a Roman emperor with all of the accoutrements that come with being an emperor, but yet you're being annoyed because somebody is interrupting you when you're in deep yeah. thought, that really appealed to me because, you know, I am a man of books, but yet I'm also a soccer uh, nut. I used to be a very competitive soccer player. So being able to excel in radically different areas, right? So he's not just a man of thought. He's also a Roman emperor. Uh, so that might tilt it towards me preferring him over others. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, I mean, sometimes people say, why are you guys interested in these dead philosophers? You know, why are you interested in ancient stuff? Because in psychotherapy and evidence-based psychotherapy, there's kind of a cultural bias towards immersing yourself in contemporary research. Like uh, cognitive behavioral therapists uh, do evidence-based practice. So there's almost a bit of a stigma against looking at old stuff, uh, especially really old stuff. You know, mm -hmm. so you should be looking at what the latest research says all the time. Like, and never, not really looking in the, in the rear view window at the stuff that happened thousands of years ago. And it took me a long time to process in my own mind why it was that I kept going back to the classics. I think one of the reasons kind of has to do with the Industrial Revolution and the division of labor and things like that, or just the division of academic disciplines over time, because I thought my background is interdisciplinary. It's combining, originally it was combining philosophy and psychotherapy, and then somehow it ended up being combining history and biography writing and philosophy and psychotherapy. Right. And it dawned on me that in the ancient world, these were not separate disciplines. Exactly. And what appeals to me is the idea that maybe set by separating them, we lose something. Yeah. Like, And then the classics, what we regain is a worldview where, that, like in Plutarch, is one of the you know our earliest examples of biography. But Plutarch says, the reason I'm writing the lives about these great Greek and Roman figures is because the moral lesson it imparts. We're doing philosophy and moral education, not just writing biography or history for the sake of it. And these things were all closely intertwined. 
And so in Marcus Aurelius, he is like a Renaissance man. All of, I mean, I thought Aristotle would be a really good example as well of the kind of polymath that you have in mind. When you say the polymath as well, I thought maybe less, less flatteringly, but I can't help but think of Marcus Aurelius from what I know of him as what we would today would call a massive nerd. Like he was a very book, not in a bad way, you know, like he was a, he was a super nerdy guy. Like he has to admonish himself in the meditations several times for being too engrossed with his books. He says, you need to set your books aside <laughs> like, and kind of focus on actually interacting with human beings and, right. you know, real life and stuff like that. Don't get too lost in your books. Um, so I think he's he's a fascinating guy in that regard. And he did he did delve into many different areas of life. He was a military commander, again, reluctantly. Like he wanted to be a kind of career politician. He initially he just wanted to do philosophy. We're told he was kind of reluctantly dragged in to politics. Um, and he approached the role, the office of emperor, very much as a kind of presidential role. You know, he trained throughout his I mean, some Roman emperors just saw it as an opportunity to party. Yeah, right. You know, right. Caligula. This is, yeah, this is great. Like, I'm rich. Everyone loves me. I'll we'll let someone else do all the work. Like, I'm just going to enjoy the benefits. Marcus and other Roman emperors were the opposite. Like, Marcus Aurelius was a workaholic. Like, he spent his entire life studying jurisprudence. He, the Roman emperor served as a magistrate. Um, you know, he was he wanted to know everything about the workings of state. You know, he took it extremely seriously, maybe even too seriously. We have letters from his rhetoric to Tafronto saying, you need to take a holiday. You know, he he a criticism of Marcus would be perhaps that he was, if anything, a bit, you know, a bit of a workaholic. Um, but he felt an enormous responsibility in his shoulders, and I can I, I can respect him for that. Well, he I, rose I, to the challenge. I, I was going to say I I loved uh, in your book when you're contrasting him to to the co-emperor who's his adoptive brother and I yeah. think son-in-law. Correct? Is that right? Yeah, families were complicated in ancient Rome. Yeah. But I mean, I love the fact that, you know, one guy is is going off. I mean, meaning the the the, the brother, the adoptive yeah. brother, he he's going, he, you know, he's being sent on these military conquests where he's just having sex with everybody, everything that moves. Yeah. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius has to kind of go and rein him in. That dichotomy, I thought, was very uh, compelling. Lucius Verus, the, the ancient sources pretty much just call him an alcoholic. And he, we're told he had a massive crystal goblet made. And the Romans had these beautiful, you know, incredibly ornate, um, you know, like crystal glasses that, that were extremely precious to them. Uh, he had one named after his favourite chariot racing horse called Flyer. And I'm guessing that it was so big, I don't know for sure. This is speculation on my part as a biographer. But I'm guessing you were supposed to see if you could drink it all. Like it was like a kind of yard of ale or like a party game or something like that. He must have had it made for a reason. Um, so he was that's the kind of stuff that he was into. He was a complete opposite, uh, in contrast to Marcus, I think. And went down this the sort of hedonistic route. Well, and I think what, what makes Marcus uh you know uniquely exemplary is that as you said, I mean, if you're a Roman emperor, the world is at your feet. Yeah, you're into guys, there's a whole plethora of guys that you could go with you're into women they're all lining up for you uh and yet he didn't succumb to that so i think that's sort of the hallmark of piety it's that when you do have the ability and power i mean most men desire to be you know sexually active with many people what stops most of us from doing it is that we don't have the capacity to attract 
the women in order to instantiate that desire. Well, he certainly had the capacity, and yet the fact that he's able to refrain from succumbing to those opportunities is precisely what makes him pious. I'll give you an intro. Let's do a little bit of a deep dive into a bit biography, psychobiography, psychological explanation for that, sure. perhaps. Now, Marcus Aurelius, um, we said he was, he seemed, we're told he was reluctant to become emperor. And I, sometimes that's said as kind of propaganda or whatever. Our sources often kind of hype things up a bit. So do we believe that or not? However, there's a reason why Marcus Aurelius would be reluctant to become emperor. And that is that his predecessor, but one, was the Emperor Hadrian, and Emperor Antoninus Pius came between them. Marcus saw the latter years of Hadrian's reign. We normally think of Hadrian as one of the better emperors, but towards the end of his life, Hadrian went crazy. And he was uh, physically kind of in a terrible mess. He had some kind of skin disease. He was, his limbs were swollen. He kept trying to commit suicide. He kept having political purges, including against members of Marcus's family. Um, so he he really went kind of crazy and became a tyrannical ruler. Here's a clue. When he died, the Senate came very close to refusing to deify him. Um, they almost condemned his memory. They wanted to annul his acts. He was hated at the time that he died. And Marcus, for the last three or four months of his life, was brought by Hadrian to live in his villa. Hadrian built this massive villa outside of Rome because he didn't like the Senate. Like, so he kind of wanted to rule things from a, a, slight, a bit of a distance in a way. And it was very opulent. Um, it kind of reminds me in some ways of Apocalypse Now and Colonel Kurtz being kind of, you know, holed up and going crazy. So... Hadrian had this kind of weird bunker mentality, thought he was surrounded by conspirators. Um, he employed many spies throughout the empire to spy on his family, to open their letters. Like Marcus was brought when he was about 16, 17 years old, if I remember rightly, to live for several months in Hadrian's villa. And so he saw the decline at close quarters of this emperor that just turned into uh, really a, a hated tyrant. And I think that scarred him. Right. I think it must have had an effect on him. It must have been kind of frightening. I think Hadrian was a scary guy. You know, he was threatening to kill members of Marcus's family. Being in line for the throne itself is actually one of the most dangerous things that could happen to yeah. him in Rome. Lots of these people that are you know, candidates for becoming emperor don't live very long. Like They tend to get bumped off. And so Marcus, I, mean, I think, would have been very conscious to this. Hadrian had this track track record of people, young men disappearing around him. Antinous, his famous lover, uh, turned up at the bottom of the Nile, like uh, drowned, and people think, you know, under very suspicious circumstances. So Marcus is living in this strange place. Hadrian, notorious for his sexual indulgence, surrounded by alcohol, maybe drugs, slaves, opulence, weird stuff, you know, going on around him, complete decadence. And Marcus in fear for his life and knowing that he's surrounded by the servants and slaves of Hadrian who would inform on him at the drop of a hat if he said anything like out of turn. Marcus in the meditation says, 
never say or do anything that require that requires walls or curtains. Now that's meant to be a kind of cynic kind of figure of speech. You know, you should purify your mind so you shouldn't be ashamed of what your innermost thoughts and feelings are. But it takes on a slightly sinister meaning if we imagine what Marcus's right adolescence was like, living in an environment where everyone was spying on him and he could have been executed if he said anything out of turn in front of the, you know, and been overheard by the servants or whatever. The so original think, fear of cancel culture. Yeah, yeah. The, well, there was plenty of cancel culture in the ancient world. So I think that scarred him. And and he just thought, I don't want to turn into Is that what happens? Does that what power does to people? It drives them crazy in the end. They become paranoid and stuff. Like, I don't want to be like Hadrian. Definitely not. And I think what saved him in a way is somehow or other, you know, after a kind of few false starts, Hadrian ended up appointing this guy called Antoninus Pius, who was also a kind of career politician in a way, but the opposite of Hadrian. He was what you would call a safe pair of hands. The Senate loved him. Nobody had anything bad to say about this guy. You know, he was very careful, very sober-minded. His reign was notorious for the peace and stability that he brought to the empire. And so Marcus had these two completely contrasting role models. Like, And I think at first he thought, there's no way I want to be like Adrian and turned into this. And then he saw Antoninus Pius, and he seems to become really fixated on emulating this guy. Like, right. What can I... Apprenticing himself to him and thinking, how has this guy managed to keep his sanity like in this situation i need to figure out how to be more like him and there's a clue in the meditations that marcus felt he had a problem with anger he says quite explicitly at the beginning of the book that he's thanks the gods that he didn't lose his temper and do something that he might have regretted there are many things in the meditations that you can almost imagine in parentheses afterwards marcus saying like hadrian right or, Unlike Hadrian. So I'm glad I didn't lose my temper and do anything. Hadrian reputedly lost his temper with a slave once. And he was, unfortunately for this guy. Oh, the the eye story to to cut the eye, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a a little bit of an ancient horror story. So Hadrian had a metal stylus or a reed stylus in his hand and he stabs this guy in the eye with it. And then he feels bad about it, like like many, you know, horrible, uh, vicious people do. He kind of felt, felt regretful after it and said he was sorry. So everyone was, oh, that's okay then. Like, we'll let you off. Um, but he felt bad. And uh, he said to the slave, is there anything I can do for you? And the guy, to his credit, reputedly said, listen, buddy, the only thing I want is my eye back. <laughs> like, and that, the moral do, of the Do story, we know what happened to that slave? And Pedrian probably had him beheaded. I'm like, sure. Dragged, dragged out the back. <laughs> he, never, he was never seen again or something. Right. Uh, no, we don't hear anything more about it. But it's interesting, we get that as on a side note. That story, if I remember rightly, comes from Galen, who was another massive nerd polymath. But by the way, I was going to ask you this. Forgive me for interrupting. I One of the things that I remember most from so far reading half the book, I didn't know that Galen was the personal physician of Marcus yeah. Aurelius. That blew my mind. Yeah, he was physician to Marcus Aurelius. And uh, Galen was a massive polymath. He, he wrote a book called on the diagnosis and cure of the soul's passions yeah, now, yeah. To, that's clearly a book about psychopathology and psychotherapy right it is and it is based on earlier books when i first started doing the stuff that i do you know and we're in we're, modern stoicism was just kind of becoming popular there was a time when i first got into stoicism it was about 25 years ago like no it wasn't a popular thing 
people weren't really interested in it. And, uh, you know, we started to say, this might be relevant to psychotherapy and modern psychology of resilience. And there was a little bit of pushback against it. People said, you're reading too much into it. The ancients didn't have anything like psychotherapy. And I thought the people that said that were woefully ignorant of basic facts about ancient literature. The medical model of psychotherapy, the therapeutic model, is very explicit. It's everywhere. Socrates said that his method is a type of therapy that uses words instead of drugs. They use the word therapeia in Greek to describe right. what they're doing. They wrote books. Chrysippus, the second, the third head of the Stoic school, wrote a famous book, sadly lost today, called On Therapeutics. It's about psychotherapy. Um, which, you know, Galen had read and his book on the diagnosis and the cure of the soul's passions is based on that. So these ancient figures were doing full on psychotherapy. Actually, Marcus mentions that at the beginning. He says one of the things he's most grateful for is that his main stoic tutor, Junius Rusticus, introduced him to the the fact that he, he needed therapy. Like he says therapy, presumably stoic therapy. So it's it's more like people forgot that stoicism was a type of psychological self-help or therapy. It became a nerdy academic kind of dusty library kind of thing for a thousand, you know, a couple of thousand years until it was rediscovered again by people that thought it might have a practical application today. What do you think brought on the renewed interest in uh Stoicism. I mean, is there is there is, is, uh, you know a, a, a particular moment where yeah. it, the interest reignites? Is it a particular show that made it popular? What, what what happened? Why why did it lay dormant for a while, and and well, people find it interesting now? You you're a scientist, so you know the the real answer to many questions is there are multiple factors sure. that determine this, right? And so one of them was that one of the pioneers of modern psychotherapy, a New York psychotherapist called Albert Ellis in the 1950s, developed a thing called rational emotive behavior therapy, which is the precursor of cognitive behavioral therapy. Which is Beck, right? Aaron Beck? Yeah, Aaron Beck basically called his thing cognitive therapy, but essentially evolved into what we call cognitive behavioral therapy. And Ellis came a little bit earlier than Beck. He, He laid the foundations for what Beck did. Ellis had read the Stoics. Ellis, Ellis, like many great guys, he was a psychoanalytic therapist and he did something that's often a game changer. He woke up one day and he thought, this isn't working. And he metaphorically, he figuratively ripped up all his books and threw them away and said he was going to start again from scratch. So he was doing a kind of post-Freudian approach and he was like, he became disillusioned with it. He thought, I need to clear my head, clear my desk, start again from scratch, Right. And he thought, what can I draw on? He'd read Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. I don't think he'd read Seneca, interestingly. But he drew on Stoicism, among other things, particularly because of Epictetus' saying, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. That's what really upsets us. And that encapsulates neatly what we sometimes call the cognitive model or the cognitive appraisal model of emotion, which is really the cornerstone of cognitive therapy. Um, And so cognitive therapists, evidence-based therapists have a, what they do resembles public health in a way that they have to translate complicated, boring research studies, hard to read studies into layman's terms. So you've got to sit down in front of a 14-year-old kid, like, or an elderly Jewish lady, or a builder or a bus driver, or 
you know, the man in the Clapham omnibus, as we say, any random individual that might walk into a consulting room and you've got to kind of explain, translate what the latest research says into, into layman's terms. And so Ellis was drawing on research in psychology about the nature of emotions. And he was trying to explain it to people. And he said, look, it's a bit like this. You know, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about it. Famous philosopher said that thousands of years ago. And he realized people connected with that. They got right. it when he said that. Ellis taught that to every single client, every single student. He mentions it in every one of it, I think, of his many, many books that he wrote. And by the time that I got into psychotherapy, it was a cliche. Everybody was saying it, you know. And that's one of the things that, that in a round, an indirect way, drove the Renaissance because it restored the credibility to Stoicism. Freudian, if you went back in time and asked Freudian psychoanalysts, should I read Marcus Aurelius and get into Stoicism, they would say no. Like, you know, if you have to get to the unconscious root of your problem and what it's got to do with you wanting to sleep with your mother and your fear of being castrated by your father. And if you don't understand that, you'll get symptom substitution. You'll just start compulsively masturbating. And we don't want that. Like, And that's that's what will happen if you read Marcus Aurelius to caricature it slightly. So they, they thought stoicism was bad and they were wrong about almost everything. Right. As it ha- as it turns out. Um, and stoicism turned out to be very similar to things that cognitive behavioral found effect, uh, therapy found effective. But there's something that stoicism has that, that cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't have and will never have. I think there are two things. Um, one is that Beck and Elsie's books are pretty good, but I've never met anyone that had them tattooed on them or that reread them every year or they're not masterpieces. Right. right. Whereas the ancient Stoics wrote thousands of books and only a handful of them survive today because it's the creme de la creme that's curated for us by history. So Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, they are some of the best, you know, writing in this genre and the, and the whole of history. And so it's memorable and it's engaging much of what they say. And it also cognitive behavioral therapy has to be goal directed. You sit in a room and you say, listen, you know, a, Two, a couple of months from now or a few weeks from now, this is what we want. We want to have got your panic attacks down to this level of frequency and intensity, or, you know, we want to get rid of this problem completely. And then you're off, but, you know, we, we end the treatment, right? We don't want it to go on forever. Um, and the, that's good because it prevents clients from being exploited. Like they used to be uh, by psychotherapists to just, you know, have them keep coming back forever, paying and paying. Freud saw his clients on average five times a week for five years, for example. If you add up how much that is per session, it's like the cost you can buy a house. Yeah. Like, um, but now, you know, therapy is time limited and, and goal focused. But the downside of that, everything has an upside and downside in life. The downside of that is it's missing the grand vision and scope that a philosophy of life has, right? And so people do cognitive therapy and they always say, this worked for me, right? If it worked for them, they say, this worked for me. It's really cool. But now what? Like, surely this could be used in other areas of life, not just for panic attacks, but there's a deeper lesson that could be derived from the stuff that I've been doing in therapy. And therapists are like, yeah, I guess so. Like, But stoicism is able to have that bigger, deeper vision. So what, Gad, what people tell me is that they see it as a Western alternative to Buddhism. Right. They see it as a secular alternative to Christianity. 
They see it as being like academic philosophy, but more practical and down to earth. They see it as being like cognitive therapy, but having a grander, more philosophical vision. And those are some of the reasons that they give. In terms of other things that inspired it, when the movie Gladiator came out. Yes. Well, I would say even Silence of the Lambs. Uh Uh, You remember there is a scene where he quotes Marcus Aurelius. I, I wonder if that itself wasn't something that brought him back into the radar. The funny thing is that, you know, these movies, you know, it, it's some people turn their academics or historians or philosophers will turn their nose up at it a little bit. They'll say, Gladiator's not historically accurate. You know what? It's actually, in some ways, it's more historically accurate, I think, than some people realize. But that, or that aside, and there, there are actually two or three references to stoicism, kind of oblique uh, ones in it. But I know the guys that saw that movie who wouldn't touch philosophy books with a barge pole, had never read a self-help book in their life. And these guys fascinate me because the clients that we see in therapy all have a big library of self-help books, right? And and so you start to think everyone's like that. As a therapist, you think maybe everybody reads loads of self-help books these days. But no, there's guys out there and gals out there that wouldn't touch that stuff with a barge pole. But... Then they see Gladiator or something and think, maybe I'll check out this Marcus. It really seems kind of interesting. And that gets them into stuff that they would never have known. And those people fascinate me. I get a real kick out of the idea that people that would have otherwise been kind of lost, cut off from philosophy, cognitive therapy, have found a way back to engage with it. And maybe their only exposure like the only opportunity for exposure to stuff that could transform their life is because they saw Russell Crowe, you know, <laughs> fighting a tiger or whatever it is he did, like in uh, in a gladiator movie. But that it's kind of it's actually quite exciting to to hear about that. But you know, uh, when you said that it's a secular alternative to Christianity, that speaks to a point that I was hoping to make, uh, which is that. You know, in 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 uh, psychology of persuasion, you have this principle of social proofing, right? Six yeah. billion people have tried McDonald's and have loved it. Therefore, if six billion people have had it, then maybe you should too, right? That's called social proofing. Well, here there is a sense of historical proofing, right? And that yeah. the fact that it has withstood the test of time for two thousand years somehow grants it uh, grants it the sort of the. Imp- imprimatur of history that is also somewhat mythical because some of these figures become sort of larger than life. So even if I don't view them as, you know, I'm speaking directly to gods, there is something almost godly about some of these uh, folks. And so maybe that's also an element that makes it feasible for people to link up to these ancient wisdoms. I think there's something in that, you know, there is a tendency throughout history for people and this isn't rational. It is a persuasion technique. So we have to be, there's a downside to it as well. We have to be cautious about it. But throughout history, we can see that people have this innate respect in many cases, if not all cases, for ancient things. Yeah. Like they naturally think, they, they look on it with a, a kind of gravity or awe. And, you know, the these ancient philosophies do kind of resemble, in many people's eyes, religious scripture. Exactly. Like it kind of has that ambience for them and that that draws them in it seems magical in a way yeah it's a bit lord of the rings for them you know like it, it's yeah. kind of something otherworldly and the other thing is you may in terms of social proof i think the thing that people often mention and i'm very aware of this in 
psychotherapy, right? One of the limitations of psychotherapy um, is that there's usually, traditionally, there's two of you, right? There's the therapist and the client in a little room, maybe with no windows or whatever, like in a couch. Um, and what's lacking from that is much exposure to, to social proof and, and modeling of other people in a group setting like you suddenly see a very different dynamic evolving because yeah. one guy in the group will say well I tried doing this and it made my problem go away and other people will go oh maybe I work for like him maybe I'll give that a go and the therapist will be sitting there thinking I told you guys to do that weeks ago and you all ignored me when I said that nobody listened when I said that right. but they identify with the other people in the group and then yeah. you can learn something from it with Marcus it really is the other type of social proof that we have I suppose, in a sense, is that people think, would stoicism really function in a, a challenging situation? You know, people can be dismissive and they go, this all sounds good. But what happens, you know, when, you know, like you're really faced with a, a tough situation? And I think there's sort of people are impressed by the fact that Marcus Aurelius is a clear example yeah. of a guy who wasn't mucking around. Like he was the most powerful man in the known world. At that time, he was in commanded the Roman Empire at the height of its power, and he was engaged in war after war, as the historians say, in, in a terrific, you know, plague, a pandemic, essentially. Yeah. They killed about five million people. That must have been terrifying to the Romans because they didn't understand. I mean, their understanding really was probably this is the gods punishing us, as far as we know. Like, other than that, we're not really sure what's going on here. But a lot of people are dying horribly in the streets. Not in a hospital, like they're lying in the streets, all covered in weeping souls, um, dying in front of us. A cartloads of bodies, we're told, being brought out of Rome and burned. Like so, they were surrounded by death for decades as this went on, and he he guided the empire. Cassius Dio, the historian, says, you know, Marcus Aurelius was far less fortunate than other emperors, but I admire him all the more because he preserved the empire in the face of all of these challenges, right? which I think is you know, yeah. spot on as an appraisal of him. Um, yeah, very cool. Uh, so let me, I want to link now uh, in the same way that you said that you link history with psychotherapy, with philosophy, uh, you know, in writing a biography. Uh, so to our earlier point about being interdisciplinarian, as you may know, I'm a, an evolutionary behavioral scientist. And so I apply evolutionary thinking to study human behavior. And it, it may interest you to know, if you don't know, that there is a whole field of evolutionary psychiatry and evolutionary clinical psychology, whereby you seek to apply evolutionary principles in your therapeutic approaches, which, which surprising to me, uh, you know, is not something that many uh, therapists know about. And so bear with me, I'm going to link it to what we're talking about. So one of the things that I do in several of my books, earlier books, the, ev the evolution books, is that I argue that cultural products, song lyrics, movie themes, literary narratives, religious narratives, uh, art, these cultural products are fossils of the human mind, right? So that the human mind doesn't fossilize because it's an organic matter but what does fossilize are the the products that human minds leave behind so i could listen to an ancient greek poem lamenting about sexual longing or sibling rivalry or paternal uncertainty that's what evolution is made of that's the stuff that we all understand so that uh 
Aristophanes and you or, or I uh, share the exact same software uh, that's running our brains. He may not know what an iPhone is or what a plane is, but the exact emotional, cognitive, and behavioral systems that defines his existence is identical to mine. So that's why I'm able to fully immerse myself in what uh, Marcus Aurelius is saying, and I get it, and you get it, and the, the trucker gets it. Okay, so having said that, as I was reading uh, some of the precepts of Stoicism, most of them made sense to me. Some of them were contrary to yeah. what I would consider an evolutionary tenet. So let me give you one example. Right. So the idea that I should always be able to rise above libel or someone saying an insulting thing to me, mm -hmm. uh, to, to a point that makes sense, but to an endless point, it doesn't make sense because our emotional system of feeling indignant, feeling that we need to, you know, retribution makes mm -hmm. perfect evolutionary sense because there is a tribe out there that wants to get our women. And the only thing that's stopping them from getting our women is that there are guys in this tribe that would not be very happy about that. And that's what keeps us in check. So, yeah. so in the same way that say the, 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 the Jesus uh, precept of turn the other cheek might not really make sense in every particular context. Mm. Are there specific stoic principles that you've looked at and said that doesn't stand the test of time, which I would argue doesn't st stand the the, the test yeah. of evolutionary principles. Take it away. Y yes. However, I'll take a step back and say there's an aspect of Stoic theory that speaks to this very problem. And it's as follows. The ancient Stoics had a more sophisticated theory of emotion than most people have today. Fact, right? And that's a fundamental, it's foundational, because everything we say about self-help, everything people think about psychotherapy, is based on the assumptions that they make about how their emotions work. And most people have a woefully naive conception of what emotions are and how they function. Some psychologists in the field of psychotherapy in the past even called it a lump theory. So anxiety is just this kind of lump of feeling. Just got, anxiety is something that washes over you in a wave. You know, rather than anxiety is composed of certain action tendencies, certain conditioned responses, certain patterns of thinking, certain underlying schematic beliefs, all combining together. I like to say it's a cake, which is baked from lots of different ingredients. It's not just some big homogenous blob. But that's how people talk about it and, and how they think about it. The ancient Stoics were a level beyond that. Like... They distinguished in a number of ways, but at the very least, they they distinguished, as we do in modern cognitive theories of emotion, between automatic or reflex-like aspects of emotion and then the more voluntary overlay that happens afterwards. So an example would be um, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder and someone runs up behind you and goes, boo, right? you will probably jump slightly higher than someone that doesn't have PTSD because you'll have what we call a heightened startle reflex, right? And it, it's like your eye blinking if somebody puts a finger towards it. It's a reflex. It's automatic. It, we share it with animals, right? In the same way, if I run up behind my cat and go, boo, it will jump in the air. Like, it's pretty deeply hardwired. And the Stoics recognized that. They weren't stupid. Like, they understood that they're involuntary. They called them propathei. 
which means proto-emotions or precursors of emotion. So the reason I'm emphasizing that is the Stoics could not and did not believe that we should be directly trying to control those in the way that we do other aspects of our emotion. Their philosophy was more that we need to accept these as natural. Like, this is just how it works. So if someone walks up to you in the street and spits in your eye, like, you're probably going to feel a flush of indignation or rage. The Stoics know that. And they say, yeah, that same as a, a dog would, like an animal would. Like, this isn't morally relevant because you didn't choose to do it. Like, it's more almost like a physical reaction. This is their level of understanding of it. And then they would say, but what happens next? Do you then continue to ruminate about it? Right. Do you indulge in selective thinking about it? Do you amplify that emotion? Do you make it worse, Gad? Right. Like, or do you make it better? Um, and at this point, you have a kind of choice of Hercules, in a sense, like, you know, do you go left or do you go right? Right, the bifurcation. It, like, or do you take a step back from it and think, yeah. well, hang on a minute. If I have chicken pox, the thing that I want to do more than anything is to scratch the sores in my face. But uh, And maybe if I was a chimpanzee or something, I would just go ahead and do that. But as a human being, I'm capable of self-consciousness and reflection and uh, social learning. So I can think, hang on a minute, like other people have taught me that this is really bad. I, I really, really want to do it. But, you know, I, I mustn't do that because I'm going to make the, the sores worse. So the Stoics would say this is what distinguishes humans from animals is the ability to pass judgment on our reflexes and instincts. You know, we might sometimes think certain proto-passions are uh, healthy or natural or appropriate or useful. And, and other ones are really unhelpful in certain situations. Maybe if I get really tense and start shaking, if somebody's physically attacking me, that might be useful because it might help me launch more quickly into action to, to attack them or to run away. But maybe if I'm in a meeting with a bank manager, it's not helpful like to do that. So the Stoics would say, you know, I, I accept this because it's involuntary, but I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to now amplify it. It's not really helping in this particular situation. It's a now useless remnant in this context of my you know evolutionary uh, right. heritage. And so the other distinction that they would make is between the feelings that we have and the underlying cognitions, and that's why they influenced cognitive therapy. Right. So the, the Stoics would say, the, in a sense, the feeling itself is morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad. Say if you're angry, the fact that your face is flushed red and your muscles are all tensing up, the Stoics would say that this that aspect of it's kind of irre morally irrelevant. What matters, though, is the underlying belief. So you think this guy deserves to be punished, like, and maybe you're forgetting that you've done similar things in the past, or maybe you're forgetting that that guy just helped an old lady across the road five minutes earlier, or maybe you're misinterpreting his motives. Like, so perhaps the beliefs that are causing your anger or maintaining your anger are not the whole truth, or maybe they're distorted, or maybe they're just complete BS, right? In which case, you know, we need to reevaluate those and change those. Like, and that should change our behavior and ultimately it should change our emotions. But the Stoics recognized that we have, as they would put it, emotional uh, reflex-like emotions that we share with animals that are part of our evolutionary heritage that they saw as natural and morally indifferent. I think it would be very interesting to, uh, I'm not sure it would be me who, who does it and maybe not you because you're not necessarily an evolutionist, but it'd be great to 
look at Stoic philosophy and try to quote, I like to use the verb to Darwinize it. In other yeah. words, in the in the same way that in my case, I try to Darwinize consumer behavior, economic decision-making, looking at the underlying biological imperatives that drive our consumatory nature. Well, it would be great to marry Stoic. I mean, if Stoic philosophy is the powerful, you know, philosophy of life that we purport it to be, then we it should largely be consistent with some of the fundamental evolutionary principles that we know today to hold true. So I think that would be a very interesting project to Darwinize uh, Stoicism. That'd be awesome. I'm going to tell you about trivia now, but it may be sometimes bits of trivia end up being more than bits of trivia can. Like it may it may spark some idea, but right now it's just a a, a little anecdote for you. There actually is, and you may you might not be aware of that. I think only classicists would have come across this, but among many of them who have studied Plato and early Greek philosophy, there in particular is a well-known speech called the Great Discourse or Great Speech of Protagoras, who is the first of the sophists, that notoriously sounds Darwinian. Really? Like quasar. In a way, there's bits in it that are, weirdly, it's about mythology, right? So there's bits of it that sound way off, but there's other bits that sound strangely. So long story short, in this famous speech, really early on, Socrates, we know about the speech because uh, Plato... Um, has uh, Socrates in a dialogue with Protagoras um, and Protagoras launches into this kind of speech about the nature of justice and his argument is that and he, it's beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of rhetoric so I'm going to mangle it, right? So the kind of mangled version of it is Protagoras says, look, the gods created all these creatures and he, the gods gave them sharp claws and thick skins. The small ones are fast, so they can run away from danger or they can fly or burrow under the ground. The big ones are tough, so they are pretty safe. But human beings are weirdly fragile, he said. So first of all, that's an interesting observation, right? They don't have claws. They can't fly. They don't have thick skin. Like, so how on earth do they survive? Like, and the, the, their reflection on it is that it's by forming communities. Mm. Like, so they're kind of like humans evolved to live in communities so that they could protect themselves. And this also strikes at the very core of Greek culture, the importance like, of the polis, of the city-state. Right. So they think like it's into the gods gave us this gift and it's it's integral to us, the survival of the species. So they're 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 offering an adaptive argument in the yeah. evolutionary sense, but rather than attributing it to the cold mechanism of natural selection, they're yeah. ultimately rooting it in the gods. But the mechanism is still evolutionarily sounding. That's what you're saying. Sounds it because our survival depends on it. It's the like the how do like we needed this to survive. We would have they say Zeus gave it to us because otherwise we would have died off as a species, is what they say interestingly. So the capacity, and they say we need laws, we need some kind of sense of communal sense of justice. And then they go on to say that if someone in an early community doesn't show some sort of moral conscience or an ability to cooperate with other people they'd be executed or exiled from the community. So again, there's a kind of selective process going on there. Right. Like we would remove them. Like, and so the community continues to grow solely composed of people who are naturally predisposed towards understanding laws, you know, social norms. And this is how humans have evolved to be able to protect themselves. And, you know, it's a gift from the gods to us. Now, Marcus really refers to this frequently in the meditations as a strategy for overcoming anger. 
And so it's a weird piece of reasoning. Right? I don't know. Many people actually, this is one of the least plausible parts that they find of his anger management strategy. But his favorite strategy is to say to himself, um, human beings are naturally social creatures. You know, we've developed this capacity to overcome anger and to cooperate with one another. Like, and we flourish when we do that. And by reminding himself of this, he feels that he then has an obligation to make the best use that he can of all of the tools and resources that society and nature have given him in order to reconcile, argue, to negotiate with people, to act diplomatically, to build relationships, to build friendships. You know, and he says, when you're angry, you kind of forget that. But why are we given all of these tools? Like, you know, we have a capacity to fight and fall out, but we also have all these tools at our yeah. disposal that are useful for forming social bonds yeah. and, you know, have an obligation. To, and it's a, that's a really interesting, curious argument. He feels obliged to try harder, like, to smooth things over. Now, we think of that when we read the Meditations, because Meditations is a strange book. It's, it's it really is written in a, a curiously artfully abstract way. He he does mention other people in the first book, but then kind of seldom after that. Um, at no point in the meditations does he really sit down and say, you know that envoy from the Markamana, he really annoyed me, and this is how you know he 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 talks in more general terms. Right. But Marcus Aurelius, at the time he was writing that book, spent. I would imagine almost every day talking to Germanic uh, chieftains, trying the war that he fought is unlike most of his uh, the conceptions of warfare that we have today. Um, it relied very heavily on diplomacy, and a, a very often Marcus was really preoccupied in negotiating peace between different Germanic tribes and trying to prevent them from fighting each other. Alliances were formed and broken on a daily basis. And so all of the stuff he says in the meditations about uh, social uh, morality, uh, justice, um, cosmopolitanism, you know, overcoming alienation from other people, it's in the context of these intense negotiations with these many warring tribes with a complex uh, dynamics going on between them and he's constantly reminding himself you have the ability to build bridges you're a naturally social creature right and so you you have a, a, an obligation particularly as emperor to really use the capacity that you have um for building rapport i guess we would say and for Beautiful. diplomacy uh, what i mean i could have I guess asked you this question at the start of our conversation, but what do you think explains the so-called Greek miracle? I, I recently had, well, I guess about a year now ago. Uh, I don't know if you know. Do you know who Victor Davis Hanson is? No, I don't know. Victor Davis Hanson is actually a very well-known classicist who's written many best-selling books. He's now a, uh, he, he, I mean, he left his academic position as a professor, but he's. Uh, still active at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And so he often weighs in on all sorts of contemporary issues using the lens of ancient Greece to kind of build the bridge. Uh, so you might want to check him out. And yeah. and I had asked him, and, I've, and you know, uh, whenever I speak to someone who is well-versed in, in the classics, I'm, I always want to know what is their explanation for the Greek miracle? What was it in the water that can generate this endless you know, wave after wave of brilliant folks that, you know, I mean, yes, you can argue that there are other cultures that have created great men, but ne but never in such a 
you know, localized geographic area within a particular time period and so many of them. Do you have any thoughts as to what created that Greek miracle? Yeah, other people could probably speak better to that than I can, but there are a couple of things. Um, and again, like there's probably multiple factors combining, yeah. right? So we've got, we're going to just pick one or two and then end sure. up ignoring sure. other ingredients. Um, there's economic factors like the in the classical era, um, Athens uh, had just formed this alliance uh, with the other Greek city-states and were exacting tribute from them. So Athens under Pericles became extreme, it became an empire. Um, and so by virtue, sorry, just to, to, to make the link for people, the bridge. So by virtue of having the economic power, they can then have the time to not just worry about having enough food for tomorrow, but they can actually engage in the quote leisure of thinking and philosophizing. Is that the and idea? It, yeah. And, and also what we see is an influx of foreign intellectuals. Right. And I guess there's other reasons for that, but one of them, one of them is this kind of expanse and empire building. One of them is the wealth, like in the patronage of. So, for instance, um, actually, Protagoras came to Athens because he became an advisor to Pericles. Like, so we, you know, we have wealthy statesmen, like suddenly having the resources to to get these advisors and intellectuals. I mean, there's a real as an aside. The first one of the earlier advisors to Pericles was a guy called Anaxagoras, who was one of the early natural philosophers, like a kind of proto-scientist. I this is a bit of a digression, but it's so cool that I just kind of can't help but mention it. There's a passage, I believe it's in Plutarch, where we really are told that um there's a there was a an eclipse and the Athenian navy was about to set sail, and the the soldiers refused to set sail. Um, because they thought it was a, a an omen from the gods, and actually the the people uh, at that time who were most known for refusing to fight because of omens were the Spartans, the Athenians' enemies. Right, they were particularly prone to doing that. But the Athenians were like, "We're not going because there's an eclipse." And support allegedly, per and uh, supposedly in the ancient world, this became a very famous anecdote retold many times by philosophers. Pericles gave them a speech where he explained how eclipses work. Wow. drawing on the natural philosophy of an Anaxagoras, and he convinced them to set sail against the enemy. So weird, how is that? Like, weirdly, I guess there's kind of an evolutionary aspect to that. Like, natural philosophy became um, a form of a, a technological advance in warfare. Yeah. It gave them a technological superiority over the Spartans, because they could persuade their soldiers not to be afraid of these omens Beautiful. by giving naturalistic explanations for them. And I, I mean, I think there was the, the other thing that people would often cite is the tolerance of Athens, the fact that they had an assembly. Like, I mean, ironically, the assembly often persecuted intellectuals, but in some ways it created a, a, a more, a, they value, it was a culture that was supposed to value freedom of speech. And that was kind of integral to the values that, you know, you can't have a, a people's assembly unless you have a, a, a norm that says we're not going to punish people for speaking their mind in the assembly. We have to be tolerant of disagreement and debate. And once that over decades becomes part of the culture, then you have intellectuals coming saying, wow, I can tell people that the sun is just a big fiery stone and it's not a god right was sky and chariot Nobody's too bad socrates didn't get that courtesy <laughs> they they you know but then you you get into the really complex question of why they suddenly turned on socrates 
And there are many kind of competing explanations for that. But the bottom line really is just that he rocked the boat by asking too many difficult questions. Socrates famously went around proving that everybody was ignorant. He talks about that in the Apology. You know, he says he, he as soon as he got the pronouncement from the oracle that said no man is wiser than Socrates, the first thing he did, like, because this is the kind of guy he was, he went immediately to one of the most powerful statesmen in Athens and asked him what justice was and then proved that the guy had no idea what justice was. And Socrates says, and, and weirdly, the guy hated me after that and so did all of his friends and they've been persecuting me for decades since. Like, so he really upset the apple cart and I, I I think that's you know he he did, they thought like most societies they thought they were tolerant of freedom of speech, but then when people actually started to test the boundaries of it, like he went a little bit too far in rocking the boat, and they had him they had him executed. But as an aside, the other thing that contributes to this I, that I can see is we we mentioned the pronouncement from Delphi. Delphi is one of the most amazing locations in the world, and everyone should go there. Incidentally, um, the temple at Delphi for the priestess, the Pythia, who inhaled these fumes and said these mysterious things that had to be interpreted. She said, no man's wiser than Socrates. But she also gave many moral maxims. There is a list of 147 of them that can be. Yeah, actually, I quote uh, some of them in my forthcoming book. Awesome, right? Yeah. Well, here's something that you'll enjoy. That like the most famous one is "Gnophai Seouton" or "Know Thyself." That's right. Uh, the second most famous one is "Made in Agan" or "Nothing Too Much, Nothing in Excess." They're right? both central in my book. Yes. Well, Plutarch says the who, and he was in addition to being a philosopher and a biographer, he was also a priest at Delphi. So again, he's another of these Renaissance men that combine all of these jobs together. Plutarch says, although most of these sayings are actually two words in Greek, like a Zen koan or something, he says, books many volumes long have been written elaborating on their meaning for centuries since. So he creates this image of the Pythia saying, know thyself, nothing too much. Um, and these being planted like seeds Right. That then, from which whole forests grow yeah. of philosophical literature. So, a woman, ironically, because women um, were excluded, generally speaking, like from philosophy. The gymnasia, the recreational grounds like the academy and the lyceum where philosophy was done, women weren't allowed into. Right. Right. And yet, it's a woman, like in a sense, who lies at the very origin of the philosophical tradition by spitting out these cryptic remarks that generations of philosophers for centuries afterwards dedicate themselves to reading meaning into. Right, beautiful. Well, to the to continuing with the Greek miracle, I do, do you know who Nassim Taleb is? Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Nassim Taleb. Yeah. So he's a fellow Lebanese author. I'm Lebanese, uh -huh. and uh, he's a good friend of mine. And so many years ago, he had quipped, and I actually mentioned this in, in my forthcoming book, uh, he had said, you know, Gad, I don't understand what you study in behavioral sciences and psychology because everything that there is to know about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already said. Now, of course, I knew that he was kind of ribbing on me. He was joking a bit. But as I did a, you know, I deep dive for, for this forthcoming book, I, I've got many of the epigraphs that I have starting each of the chapters are from the ancient Greeks. You know, here comes Seneca, here comes the Delphic Maxim and so on. And I started thinking, you know what? I think he might be onto something because oftentimes when I would 
come up with what I thought was an original thought of mine, I would then find out, well, Epictetus already said that 2000 years ago. So, mm -hmm. so having said that, yes, of course, many of the, you know, most fundamental things that we might want to know about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already written about, but are there any mm -hmm. things that we know today that if we were to export it back in time to the ancient Greeks, we would be contributing to their knowledge. And I'm not talking about oh, the, wow. the, the, the yeah. molecular structure of uh, this particular. I'm talking about uh, on a grand philosophical level, what are some things oh. that would surprise the ancient Greeks that we know today to be true? There, I think there are going to be many things. And also before I answer that, I'm only giving a little bit of an aside. There's a sense, I think, it could be argued that Stoicism is Lebanese. Like... At least it's for the best looking folks, the smartest yeah. folks, and the most beautiful food. All We've right. got it all, Donald. Because Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, was shipwrecked at Athens. Right. He wasn't Athenian. He was a Phoenician merchant who came from Cyprus, but he also had ties to what's modern day Lebanon. Right. Right. So, and many of the subsequent teachers in the Stoic school, we believe, appear, they, they tended to be immigrants to Athens. We believe that they were Phoenician. Right. Like, so, as an aside, because often people will say it's like this is our oh, Greek philosophy. The 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 Athenians didn't really see Stoicism as a Greek philosophy. They kind of saw it as an an import, like an immigrant right. philosophy. Incidentally, what's his name? Um, one of the leaders of the Platonic Academy, Zeno went to study in the Academy of Plato under one of Plato's successors. Zeno is the founder of Stoicism. No, the founder of Stoicism. Stoicism, sorry. Yeah, founder me. of Stoicism, yeah. But he, he was, he'd originally been a cynic philosopher and then he founded right. Stoicism. Um, Zeno went and studied in the academy and the teacher um, at the time, I think it um, was Polymon, the guy's name. Anyway, the head of the school at the time said, Zeno, um, I notice you sneaking into the garden of the academy via the, the garden gate and stealing all of my ideas and dressing them up in Phoenician attire. Like, so he says, you guys are kind of like borrowing bits of Athenian philosophy and you're kind of putting your own foreign exotic kind of take on it. So he, although people talk about this as being Greek philosophy, that's not really how the Greeks saw it at the time, interestingly. Interesting. Now, what, what are they lacking? Well, God, where do we begin? Like many things. They had no idea of Darwin, obviously. Um, and they, they lived in a kind of theological universe, a mythological universe. So the, the Stoics, in some ways, as we've seen, the, there might be little inklings of Darwinian-type thinking. There's also like even little inklings of agnosticism or atheism, because the Stoics were among those who were known for saying that the myths about the gods were metaphorical. Right. Um, and so therefore they had a more metaphysical conception of God or Zeus. In some ways, many ways, they, they anticipate Christianity in many regards. Um, they had a kind of quasi-monotheistic view, um, and they thought the, the different gods were just metaphors for different aspects of nature mm. and so on. Um, so, But nevertheless, they would be surprised, I think, by our agnostic, atheistic um, worldview. They would be surprised by the scientific method. Um, from a, I'll pick a very specific thing that people might not expect, just because it's quite relevant to psychotherapy and self-help. There are many things in the field of uh, psychopathology and psychotherapy that the ancient Stoics would be interested in that they didn't know. Um, I don't... Th that the, Many of them they had kind of inklings of, though. 
I don't think they understood the role of what we now call ruminative thinking. Mm. So there's what we tend to call... Which is a manifestation of OCD. Yeah, uh, and it can it can also ruminative thinking also plays a role in generalized anxiety disorder right. and clinical depression as well. So ruminative thinking is kind of like overthinking. It takes a number of different forms, um, where thinking is kind of conscious and deliberate, but it goes on too long. So worrying is a similar thing where I some... must have said something wrong at yesterday's party, and now yeah. everybody thinks I'm an idiot, and I just ruminate over that intrusive For hours and hours and yeah. hours, and people can't get to sleep at night. Yeah. They can't. Uh, a typical worrier will lie in bed at night, and they won't be able to get to sleep because they're worrying. Um, people with clinical depression will stay at home and ruminate even more than if they were busy working and being active in life so the more withdrawn they become the more opportunity they have to go even more deeply ruminative about the thoughts so we now know that this kind of overthinking exacerbates anxiety and depression and contributes to other mental health problems quite significantly i don't think the stoics or any other ancient thinkers had a clear enough grasp of that and you could say it's inherently a hazard of philosophy philosophy is quite a ruminative endeavor quite an introspective endeavor. And so this is partly why Buddhist mindfulness meditation is in vogue and has been for several decades in the mental health field and in psychotherapy, because you don't, you stop rumination during meditation. When a thought pops in your mind, you treat it as if it's a cloud passing across the sky and you choose not to respond to it. Go think about that later. Like I'm not going to suppress it. But I'm not going to tussle with it either. Right. I'm just going to acknowledge it and kind of shrug it off, right? Whereas ruminative thinking jumps on every single thought, right. right? Engaging with them all gets drawn deeper and deeper. And if they're anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts, it's like becoming tangled in a net, like deeper, more and more entangled the more you struggle against them. I don't think the Stoics had a clear grasp of that, and yet it's an important mechanism in maintaining mental health. Some of the things that they described would potentially contribute towards increased ruminative thinking if they weren't careful. Although even then, I have to say that at times they do seem to have an awareness of the danger of overthinking. There's a bit where Epictetus, for example, says that when you're in the grip of a passion, I think he's talking about anger, but it could be desire, could also apply to depression. The Stoics grouped all these things together. He said that you should... Um, postpone responding to the automatic thought or impression that pops into your head until you have leisure to respond to it in a calmer, more rational frame of mind. So there it sounds like he understands the need sometimes to disengage from a train of thought and come back to it later, which is really integral to a lot of modern psychotherapy. But generally speaking, like Marcus Aurelius looks like an overthinker and he talks about having problems sleeping, right? right? So there's little clues that he may have been the type of guy who's like trying really hard to do self-improvement, but in some ways maybe trying too hard. And Yeah, you almost think that he couldn't have come up with meditations were he not somewhat absolutely. of a ruminative thinker. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I thought you were going to say as well, like, you know, some of the greatest innovations in history come from people because they were struggling with something. Yeah, yeah. yeah I actually talk about this. So in French, the term... You may know it in French, especially since you live in Montreal, uh, la, la maladie créatrice, which basically refers to, you know, being creative when you are in a yeah. bout of a mental health so that that kind of unleashes your creativity. So that, I think, speaks to your point, right? 
if Marcus Aurelius never had any emotional problems, he didn't struggle, he would never bother training in stoicism, <laughs> he wouldn't have written the meditations. But, you know, and again, I think in some ways that goes back to him seeing Hadrian's decline and being right. scared um, that he might end up uh, being the same way. Um, and then, you know, maybe the problem, in a sense, for Commodus, his uh, his son, was that he didn't see the risks as clearly right. as Marcus did. So he thought, I don't need to work on myself. Right. Like, you know, like, I don't see, see what the problem is here. Like, because he'd only seen Marcus's reign and he didn't have first-hand experience of how messed up things could get under, uh, you know, with someone like Hadrian, where he was corrupted by uh, decadence and paranoia. Yeah, so, good. You know, so Commodus just basically went, repeated the same cycle. Beautiful. Uh, I could keep you here for another three hours, but I know that we're meeting shortly in person, so we both yes. have to get ready to to, to meet up. Uh, <laughs> are there, So last question, and then we can say... Uh, Goodbye offline, uh, you know, uh, off off the off the record. Uh, are there any current projects uh, that you'd like to discuss and promote? Take it away. I do, I'm doing a lot, a lot of things. Um, so we have a nonprofit that's based in Greece. It's about a year old, called the Plato's Academy Center. Because I went to the ruins, Plato's Academy, and I, I realized no one told me there was even anything there. And when I got there, I realized it's because it's a what the Athenians call a dog park today, like which kind of really struck me. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's a dog park. And the people walk the dogs there, they jog, they do exercise and stuff like that. There's some ruins there, there's a little museum. And I thought, I can't understand why there isn't an international conference center here. And it's a really poor suburb that was hit hard financially that could greatly benefit from urban renewal. And so I started shooting my mouth off about this on various podcasts and things. And then people said to me, hey, well, why don't you do something? And so I kind of stumbled into starting a nonprofit organization with the goal of creating some kind of conference facility adjacent to the Ruins of Plato's Academy. And uh, we've got support from various institutions and individuals in government in Greece. We've been running virtual events. We've run, we last year we ran an event in the park among the ruins of the wow. academy with Professor Angie Hobbs, who's like an expert on Plato, and Bettany Hughes, who's a broadcaster, uh, who does, uh, has done many programs about Greek philosophy and, and history. And so the mayor of Athens came and we had this event under a marquee in the middle. And we got to say, Plato is buried here. Like, wow. Plato and Socrates used to walk here. Zeno used to walk here. He sneaked in by the garden gate and stole the like the Athenian philosopher's ideas and dressed them up in Phoenician garb. This is where he did that. Like, so we uh, we showed that we could run events there. We've got an event running tomorrow online that about a thousand people have registered for. Wow, philosophy and psychological resilience. So I mean, if anyone wants to just check out the nonprofit, we're always happy for people just to join the community and support the events. And, you know, eventually what we hope is in addition to having an online community, we're going to have more physical events uh, taking place in interesting locations in Athens. Wonderful. Uh, best of luck. This sounds very exciting. I very much look forward to meeting you shortly in, in person. I was so delighted, as, as, as you saw when I tweeted to you, uh, that you lived in Montreal. I mean, the the, the vagaries and you know serendipity yeah. in life is just unbelievable. How, how long have you lived in Montreal for, by the way? 
I've only only moved here a few months ago. Like I said, I said to you earlier, I'm surrounded by cardboard boxes because I've just moved into a new place that we're renovating. Oh well, I have to so take a newcomer. I'll have to take you around and familiarize you with some of the hot spots of Montreal. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us, uh, Donald. Fantastic conversation. Please come back anytime you'd like and uh, stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Cheers.